Hello, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for this week, ending Friday the 10th of November. We are on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, off the back of a long weekend, Nat tells us all about her camping escapades and Digger went foraging in the forest. Writer and director Goran Stilevsky fills us in on the free-flowing process of shooting his second feature film, Housekeeping for Beginners in Macedonia. And director of Edgar's Mission, Pam Ahern, spoke to us about expanding our compassion to include all animals. We go back and forth on windscreen wipers and Booker Prize winning author Richard Flanagan drops by with his new work of non-fiction, Question 7. Triple R. I have just returned from an extended long weekend camping with my family. So there was 15 of us all up, five of them kids, two of them under two. It was for my mum's 70th birthday. So naturally I'm exhausted. Yeah. (laughs) Um, This is at a happy place? Yes, this is at my mum's happy place. Um, I've spoken, I think, at length a bit of how much my mum loves to camp, but I think this even demonstrates it even further. She loves it so much she even loves the setup and the pack down. Oh, wow. Because as a gift we thought, because this is part of her 70th birthday celebrations, this is one of the things she wanted to do to celebrate, we all chipped in t- to get um, a glamping set up for it. <gasps> so it's where people come in and yeah, set it yeah. up, a, a nice big tent for you and pack it down. But when we told my mum in the lead up to the trip, she kind of took it more as like an intervention (laughs) (laughs) of her love of camping and no joke it took her like 24 hours to accept the gift oh wow yeah it's maybe like a bit of like control to it but also it's like she spends all of this time like she's built up you know all of her equipment yeah all of this thought goes into she's always like I know how I'll do it better next time it's like you know an art or a sport or something that she's constantly refining Mm. and then we just can't come in and be like here here's someone who's going to do it better for you yeah okay Uh, so you're old you're old you can't can't be trusted yeah so it took about 24 hours for to her for her to accept it and say thank you, uh, <laughs> which was pretty funny. And were they used this time or it's for a future trip? This time, okay. yeah. So this was in the lead up to the trip. We're like, Mum, we got this for you. So they would set up her tent? Yeah. And so did your mum then, to fill that void, set up oh, your yeah. tents instead? 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we got the text messages. So she still normally picks up, sets up like a big mess tent like that. It's kind of a communal that everyone comes and there's all food and a table and chairs and everything around there. So oh, yeah. extra love went in into there and, and set up the other tents, oh. absolutely. Oh, I was joking about her setting up your tents for fun, but she did. I mean, no, we don't make her do that, but no. she set up the big Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tent. she wanted to. Oh, yeah, there was no sitting back and going, oh, well, I've freed up some time. It's like, no, what else can I set up? Oh, okay. Can put extra effort into the communal area and it looked fantastic. But, yeah, it was a bit of a struggle for her to accept that. Um, but I became, yeah, it was like a big event. I became hyper aware of camping, though 
Uh, like, are you much of a camper, Mon, or like, how does your family go? No, I'm an aspirational camper. My mum's never been camping, as far okay. as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never, I've never been camping with my family. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think. I think Dad's been a little bit. My sister, but it's, it wasn't a thing growing up. I remember going with a friend's family as mm-hmm. a little kid, really liking it, and then have liked it when I've done it. But my main experience of camping is music festivals, so it's not proper camping. But I really want to be. Mm. Because I think it's I think it's a good thing to do with kids. Mm. Yeah. So it, I think it would be a nice thing to do, but I can't claim it yet. Yeah, definitely. You'll get there. Thank you. Yeah, I'll yeah. give you my mum's number. She yeah, can give I you some think, tips. Know, awesome, should... awesome glamping, the number for the, the glamping people. But are you Are you a camper? I have broad fondness, but yeah, and I used to work in a camping store, but I don't. Of oh. course, I forget that. I have any, yeah, it's, people get really into the weeds. And so that's why I'm shocked with the experience that I've had camping with people who are the alpha organisers or whatever, mm. they would tolerate someone monkeying around. Mm. It sounds like being ahead of a glamping, disassembling as a guest decamping glamper. Does that make sense? Is that whatever it says on the job, on oh, the business yes. card? That, yeah, you'd have people watching like hawks. Mm. Say, that doesn't go there. I don't do yeah. it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, oh, I wouldn't do that. Was your mum supervising? Um, I wasn't there when they set, but I no doubt that she was. No, that would be. And so is that all right that you just swan in once it's all established in the, with the camping? Mm. I mean, it has to be because that's how it happened, really. <laughs> <laughs> I just take advantage of being like, like operating as a solo unit because there's so much organisation required for mm. all of the families and the kids. Yeah, okay. that I can just kind of pop in and out unnoticed I actually did a real sneaky because my mum's got a a van so um she uh, packed a tent for me because um and I was going to go set it up but then I was like I'll just take the van don't worry about it mum oh so you just slept in the van yeah it's a camper van oh great it's it's a pop top yeah so I was like but I could see my sisters being like oh yeah look at you no organization required (laughs) just waltz in late and then sleep in the van yeah good for you but uh, (laughs) sounds like a great weekend yeah no it was it was joyous we played a really fun game called is it a baby or a bird crying (laughs) (laughs) I never got it right (laughs) someone's crying no it's a magpie (laughs) but I my partner came along he's come for like a short trip um, camping with the family before and he's done plenty of camping but he's also made it known that it's like if there's a bed available in a house like that would be preferable mm-hmm. and he mentioned that one of his good friends had a house like in Shoreham not far from where we were camping mm. he's like oh I can speak to Harvey and we can stay there and we can pop in to the, and come and go from the campground it's so close I go no we absolutely cannot do that this Camp- is a camping trip. This is a camping trip and this is a, like a hazing ritual for my family. This is how you will be accepted into the family or you won't be. You'll be shunned. This is it. Make or break. You've already failed by proposing to, to stay in a house. FIFO camping. Yeah. Oh. And so. It's weak. And then I was like, no. He's like, yeah, okay. Whatever. No stress. Just seemed like a reasonable offer that maybe someone might want to take up if they wanted to be more comfortable. I was like, no, we're not about comfort. And. <laughs> But then I was just hyper aware for the rest of the weekend of like it's a hard sell camping if there is something else on offer because it is literally just doing everyday tasks with a few more obstacles yes. in the way. Everything just takes a and little bit longer. Comfort. 
Yeah, but I think that's fair to say. Mm. Yeah, not always, but a lot of the time, yes. <laughs> There's something down. I was like, do you want a cup of tea? Okay, where do I find the mugs? Boiling the water takes a bit longer. Mm. But as campers, like, we fall back on, like, the nature, mm. how beautiful it is. That's key to our argument and the fire. But we just need the weather to stay on board. Otherwise, that... Well, is could... this a powered site or is this... Yep. Oh, like, no... The showers? There's Yeah, there's a block of showers. Yeah. So it's not... Yeah, I think if you're out hiking and there's... I think you know why you're camping yes. because you're out doing the hike. But this is like, no, we're choosing to be kind of close to amenities. Like yeah. there is the option of staying in a house that, you know, we're not far from civilization or anything. You can walk to a cafe, mm. but we are just choosing to camp. <laughs> so, yeah, I was like, it can be a tough case, tough case to make. Would Will want to go camping with you? Yeah, he loves it. Our, we our neighbours who uh, our old neighbours used to have a really good setup. They had three little kids, and uh, we would just admire them because they would have they had like a big the big car, and they had a, they always had like a trailer with fancy camping stuff, and they'll take you know like a three year old camping regularly. And I was like, that's so cool that you do that and teach a kid that you can go on holiday, and it's not necessarily comfortable and like as easy as home, but it's mm-hmm. still really fun. So. Um, I think, and he will was a scout. Ah, uh, love it. <laughs> so I think he can tie a knot if yeah, anything comes yeah. up. In Germany, <laughs> no, yeah. So I feel like, um, although I reckon German scouts would be next level. That would be full on, <laughs> very efficient. <laughs> um, but I think it's I try think undoing it's, that knot. Yeah, <laughs> no. Has has Gabriel ever been camping? No, not yeah. I mean, he's very uh, little. Uh, he's little. We've taken him to a. He, it's difficult, isn't it? Like it was a big shack. It was borderline camping. And there's yeah. such a spectrum, isn't there? Yeah, it is. Uh, and I'd definitely like to do it again. But there's always, you know, you, we went to a property where there's like mine shafts everywhere. <laughs> 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 so there's just always that little added risk. But it's certainly, yeah, it's – I think last time we went camping was for someone's birthday. Kind of like – so people obviously it's so central to their identity that that's how, that how they choose to celebrate. Mm-hmm. And do you think this will be a one-time offer? Like, do you reckon that'll be – was that the hurrah? Like, is this as big as it gets, the 15? Uh, yeah, that's probably numbers-wise, but no, no final hurrah. They'll be continued to roll out the, the camping yeah. trips. Yeah, does your mum have a camp with – does she have camping mates? Uh, yeah, she's got some friends who kind of live down that way and she goes camping on her own as well with her partner. Yeah, okay. Yeah, her partner probably cops it the most actually. Yeah. <laughs> He's like her PA. Sean, not there! <laughs> Sean and yeah, yeah. And what about the campground owners? Do they know that there's a milestone and yes, give you extra firewood? I don't know what happens. <laughs> we got we got a VIP spot. Yeah, ah. so it's a really beautiful campground. Yeah, and amazing view. So we were kind of up at the top, right on like a ledge, looking over the water, Western Port ah. Bay. I remembered last time because that's where I spoke about going for my first swim, not the ocean. Oh, West, the, oh that's Western right. Port, Don't pretend. Western Port Bay. Yeah, so looking over the water. Yeah, um, it normally is like rotated through because we go there several times a year. Mm. But that's that's the spot that you want. And we had all of that top area. And what about leaving in the morning? Because a lot of people, you know, they'll gingerly open the zip or whatever because it's quiet and you're in a car 
<laughs> was that did you sleep in more than everyone else because uh, the blinds were yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I slept in and just like blocked out is Natty awake all the kids just no, no, circling no. the van waiting for me to wake up <laughs> to like, emerge no. from your VIP yeah, den don't wake your auntie <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R dirt 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 it's where you grow your plants dirt you got some on your pants. Can you stop singing about dirt? Constant Forager, Dick is with us to talk gardening. Morning, Digger. Morning, all. How are we? Yeah, wow, good. It's a beautiful morning. Beautiful morning. Good to be out. It's bright. It's sunny. Truly. Everyone was really cheery on the way in this morning. Everyone that's I good. saw, g'day, morning, morning, oh. morning. Well, that's <laughs> just you. It felt like significantly lighter as well this morning. Yeah, definitely. Brighter. And the, and the heat's up. Um mm. I've been out and about since I last saw you. I went on a tour. What do you know about food forests? Have you Very heard the term food forests before? Not no. really, no. I've heard food desert. The complete opposite. So as the name suggests, imagine going into a forest, but it was a bit like Willy Wonka awesome. and every single plant had an edible component or a, or a usable component. Sounds incredible. Yeah. So I went to one. Cool. Out in um, out in Dixon's Creek. So, um, shout out to all the folks out at Edible Forest. Uh, it's part of the Yarra Valley Estate out in Dixon's Creek. So they've turned one acre of their you know, large acreage out there into this edible food forest. So literally, imagine all tiers of plants from upper canopy shrubs, lower canopy, right down to the ground. And as you meander through this forest, everything has an edible component. So the tour guide go, will literally say, this is such and such, you can try this leaf. This is such and such, this one you can use as soap. This is, eat this berry. And it's just this Willy Wonka tour of a garden. It's absolutely incredible. Now, food forests aren't uh, something like they're brand new. It's not a brand new concept. They have been around for a while. And I, I just thought, look... Listening to Sean Dooley you know, on your show last week talking about ha- how important habitat is, it's, it was just a no-brainer. It's like, why aren't we all doing this? Why aren't we doing this in you know, government parks and on nature strips? And we have available land, but in, as time goes on, that's going to become less and less available. So why not use what we have now to stabilise forests? So the main reason or the main benefits around a food forest is that with any forest... The older it gets, the better it gets. And the better it gets, the less it needs to be maintained. So this garden is up at um, Dixon Creek. It's only eight years old, but they're already backing off the maintenance. Like it's literally stabilised that quickly that now you don't do anything. All you do is go back to our origins as a species and go back and wild harvest. Wow. Can we be trusted? I mean, I presume this joint's got a gate. Yeah. <laughs> it does have a gate. Um but I think the whole point is that, yeah, as if we are respectful of it and maybe with education and those kind of things, that if we had public food for us, that it would be respected so that you could go in and just take what you need. But as the forest matures, it's always been predated on by animals. All forests have been. So it's not like, you know, we're going to decimate every forest that we ever make. Um, and just the fact there's so many other benefits that, you know, obviously as it stabilises, but then it's it's habitat for every kingdom. So it's not just going to be humans that are going to be harvesting from this. Obviously birds are going to use it, other mammals are going to use it, reptiles are going to use it, but even in the soil, all, all soil kingdoms are going to use it too. I know 
the whole fungi kingdoms you know in the news right now but it's it's really important stuff mm. that we create these environments that aren't going to need inputs from us as time goes on it can only be a benefit mm. how like far how much lead time would you need to plant like how long would have they been working on this food forest so they started uh, started planting it 8 years ago okay. and within 6 years it's literally like what you would call established, which we know that in traditional landscaping it's not unusual to be like, okay, we need five to seven years for this garden to mature and then you'll actually see what the design was, you know, so as everything grows in together. So that's pretty quick. That's incredible. That, you know, and some of these, we're talking, you know, so most of the, the tiers in, in common food forests, you have upper canopy plants. So in your mind think... Um, think something like a large chestnut or even a eucalyptus, you know, bears a yield, maybe even a mulberry. And then we come down to understory plants like, you know, your apple trees or pear trees. Then into the shrub layer where you would have, you know, things like fajoas or camellia sinensis, the tea plant. You know, all tea comes from a, a camellia which, you know, mm-hmm. is growing all over the suburbs. And then from the shrub layer it comes to herbaceous layer like bramble berries. And then into the ground cover layer, like strawberries. Um, and then we've got the root crops. Obviously, you've got potatoes, those kind of things. All come from a forest. And then you have the climbers, which kind of knit all the different layers together. So there is no horizon in a food forest. It's literally meandering through. Nothing's tied up. It's all just linked in together. And they're all growing in situ underneath one another, as a forest does. Which, if you think of traditional gardening, we've kind of, we've gone completely the opposite way of like here's my fruit trees and they're all in a row and then here's my blah blahs and they're in a row they've evolved to be together and they actually do better together um it's agriculture that separates everything because we need to automate it you know and create ease for spraying and ease for harvest but it's because we did that that we need to do those practices is this edible forest that you attended is are these replicated around the world or are we pioneers? Absolutely, no, no. It's, you know, it's, it was kind of a starter movement in the permaculture movement back in the seventies, and there are examples. You know, there, there's lots of other examples, even urban examples in Melbourne um, that you can go and visit. But it's just it's, a lot of people struggle with the visual of it because it's dense, mm. yeah, and it's 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 a forest, and mm. I, I personally love forests. I feel very comfortable in a forest. I feel actually secure where I, I understand that a lot of people would feel kind of vulnerable because you can't see what's around you. Um, but just the idea of you know, meandering through and you never know what's around the next corner and you can smell something that excites you but you have to actually go and find it. Um, I just really well, love the concept. That's interesting. So the smell changes depending on what part of the forest you're in? Absolutely, or? yeah. So light changes, you get beams of light, you get shards of light, you get everything from full shade to full sun and everything in between as you move and meander through because you, you kind of zigzag in on yourself. Now, the models can be anything. It doesn't mean that you have to stick to one, like it has to be a like an Australian native bush foods food forest or a you know, subtropical food forest. You can blend them. There's no rules in and around this. And, you know, um, up at the edible forest up there, there's plants literally from all over the world mm. that, you know, a lot of the time people think, well, uh, how can a a South American ground cover work on Australian native, you know, upper canopy. And with trial and error, and they're the first to admit, you know, there was a lot of failures, you know, stuff that didn't work and you try this and you try that because it just hadn't been done before. Mm. Um, and eventually you find species that 
do actually work because at the end of the day, plants you know, are, are really just about obviously the ecosystem they come from and that consists of your soil and your air and your light and your water quality. If you can get something that mimics that, they'll actually fit slot into their, the role that they performed in their own forests in this mixed contrived forest that we make and they'll tick away just happily. So that's a big thing for me that into the future, you know, food security is so important. Now, I can see why big, you know, chains would maybe, you know, their ears would prick up a little bit. It's like, hang on, if we're providing free food in the suburbs for people, then it, we're not going to be putting the big cats out of business. No, you know, it's out the of amount. Business. Yeah, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. But the added benefit of that if, you know, people needed to get access to fresh food, that it was just wild Mm. yeah are there elements that people could take or replicate from these forests and and take to their kind of garden absolutely kind of change up their practices yeah the best part of the tour for me that you know jamie if you're listening um would be as you're meandering through you'd look at a little snapshot and james say well have a look at this it's called a guild right so it's a collection of plants that work together with the, they've all got a common goal, and that is survive and support each other. So as you walk around the corner, it's like, okay, here's a little collection. Here's five species that you could have in a suburban back garden. It's only 10 square metres, but you've literally got five different species from upper canopy right through to ground covers. And they're all completely stacked. And so this is the thing. This one acre has thousands and thousands of plants in it, where most people in their quarter-acre block might put, you know, 20 plants. Mm. Um, it's that. a forest. It's absolutely stacked. Do you reckon they'll diversify the menu, as it were, you know, like sub some things out and bring others in? Or is, you say the, it was, it's a very ambitious idea and now we're in a phase where we can not sit and forget but it's self-maintaining. Mm. Is, do, is there still monkeying around at all? Oh, absolutely, because, you know, every plant has a lifespan. So mm. at some point something dies and I know within my own garden – I this sounds really bad. I kind of rejoice when something carks it because, yeah. like, okay, what next? Because I've got a list of like sixty plants that I could potentially put in. And you're not going to pull anything out prematurely. Ah, oh, sometimes I have. It's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, that worked. I designed it. I thought about it in my head. It came up five years later. It's it's all come together. It looks good. Okay, off with your head. Next <laughs> one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I love this. And do you reckon that you? Where would you like? To see more of these? Well, I, you know, public parks, I think there's a, a big opportunity for it. So, in and around, you know, think around, we've got our you know, play equipment for kids or whatever it might be, and then there's the basketball court, and they're fairly barren. I get that we mm. need open grass spaces for you know, different activities, but where we already have upper canopy set, so there's, there's large trees in parks. So, that's the hardest part because if you're going to build a forest, you need the upper canopy first. Because they set, essentially set, the, you know, the understory light. So I'd start there. That's the very first place I'd start. Just start filling in those gaps. I personally would love to see the end of nature strips mm. in the okay. in the model that they're in now. I think that there's, if you were to add up the square meterage of nature strips in sub, in suburbia, mm. we'd have incredible forests. So what you know? would you do with nature strips instead? So get rid of the grass, and you know, you can have little pavers and little areas for people to get out of car, but. I know with my own nature strip that where you know our street and how everyone parks, there's not even a half of it that people use. Mm. So 
yeah, plant that up with shrubs underneath those existing trees. Love that revolutionary digger. Yeah, let's 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 just green up the suburbs, you know. <laughs> uh, and so edible forest is in the Yarra Valley, and there are tours. Yeah, so you jump online. So it's edible forest, part of Yarra Valley Estate, um, out in Dixon's Creek. So jump online, you know, book a tour, get out there. It's a wonderful day out. Look, just up the road, you've got the chocolate factory and you've got other gardens to visit. You've got mm. Shandon. Make a day of it. Yeah. yeah. We'll send yeah. Birdman as well. <laughs> Do a double header. Digger. That was amazing. Thank you. Pleasure. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Goran Stalevsky is a writer director. His debut feature, You Won't Be Alone, set in an isolated mountain village in 19th century Macedonia in 2022, premiered at Sundance and quickly earned the filmmaker a reputation in Hollywood, with Variety naming him one of its 10 directors to watch. His second feature, last year's romantic drama Of an Age, opened the Melbourne International Film Festival, and the director has now returned with his third feature, Housekeeping for Beginners, which in September won the Queer Lion Prize at Venice and screens this weekend as part of Melbourne. Queer Film Festival, and to tell us about it, the former video store clerk turned red carpet recidivist joins us now. Goran, welcome to Breakfasters. <laughs> Thank you. Very happy to be here. <laughs> uh, now, can you introduce this film to the listeners? It seems, on the face of it, pretty ambitious. Um, yeah, well, I think when I was writing it, I wasn't thinking of it in terms of what's practically and easily achievable, so I just <laughs> yeah. kind of dreamt away, and then suddenly we had to make it. Um, it's set in present-day Macedonia, uh, in the capital city, uh, where there's a gay woman who's kind of inherited this massive rambling household, and she lets people stay in it, who have been queer, queer people who have been kicked out of home, um, including her partner and the partner's two daughters. And then the partner gets a terminal diagnosis, and they have to figure out what happens to the girls. Um, and all kinds of chaos actually happens in between. There's a lot of um, joy in the film. It's a sort of, um, you know, every part of life is covered mm. in a kind of unconventional family setup. And, yeah. And you, you told uh, Flick Forward on Primal Screen before the film's release that the crew were like, wait, did we just make a comedy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it caught a lot of people by surprise because obviously when you uh, tell people what the premise is, they assume it's going to be, you know... Uh, European art house misery, essentially, for two hours. And <laughs> I don't feel like, you know, I, I'm trying to always capture what life feels like on a day-to-day level. And I think, you know, even, you know, the, the darkest life um, in these places, there's a lot of sort of, I don't know, you still need to survive day-to-day and you find joy and happiness and things to get you through it. And I try to kind of focus on that. And I did so in the story as well. So, yeah, the whole crew was kind of stunned at, you know, how much laughter there was on set. And, and yeah, um, I'm hoping the audience is as well. Mm. <laughs> how does that translate in your process if you're trying to capture that day-to-day life? Is it kind of more of like a fluid approach when you're filming scenes and the story? Does it kind of evolve as you shoot or is it kind of set in stone? Well, a little bit. I mean, it's definitely not set in stone. I don't think I could work that way. Um, And especially, you know, one of the main characters in this film is a five-year-old girl. And you don't really get to direct a (laughs) five-year-old. They direct you. She really deserves co-director's credit. And um, what is now the opening scene in the film, we shot first just kind of as a test, essentially, because it's not just uh, Little Jada, but, like, a lot of the cast is people who have never acted, you know, on screen and a lot of the time, uh, the way you shoot a film traditionally can be very sort of restrictive and sort of stage managed. And then 
it's hard for all actors, but especially first time actors to sort of, you know, deliver feelings in a raw, authentic way <laughs> or believable, natural way uh, when you work that way. So we try to sort of run it almost like as a mini documentary environment where, you know, the actors uh, were able to just kind of run around and sort of interact as they would in real life. And the camera is always going to capture it. Um, and especially because, you know, again, a five-year-old, she just improvised. Uh, you know, a lot of the comedy uh, then comes from her because to her it was just like extremely, you know, high-level role-play. <laughs> you know, like a role-play game. And like, I'm going to be a doctor now. And you're like, okay, I'll figure out a way to edit around that. Thank you, Jada. <laughs> um, but yeah, you kind of try to match her energy because ultimately, you know, uh, that kind of capturing that kind of fire in the eyes is to me the goal and then the rest of it I'll figure out somehow. <laughs> is the translation to English pr pretty straightforward? Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, there's probably even more swearing in the film. <laughs> there are just times where I'm like, okay, if I translated that literally, <laughs> it would get very complicated Yeah, to right. Um, what true vulgarity, like deeply provincial and uh, singular yeah, rudeness. Uh, yeah, look, I think uh, Macedonians can get very creative uh, <laughs> with their swear words. So, you know, I tried to capture a lot of it <laughs> in the subtitles. And then, like, uh, a lot of the film is in uh, the Roma language. So uh, sort of gypsy people who, you know, prefer to be called Roma, um, they have their own language. And, again, a lot of the actors in the film uh, were encouraged to improvise. And I don't really speak that language. There were times I'm just kind of hunting moments. And then eventually I would uh, talk to, you know, the cast. We're, like, close friends now for them to just interpret. So what is being said here? Um, and, you know, I'm figuring out as it's happening, uh, obviously, what's going on in the film editing. But also sometimes, like, uh, Samson Selim, who's one of the main actors, he, he's very bold when he's improvising on screen. And then I'd be like, so what did you say here? He's like, oh, no, I can't say those words. Oh. <laughs> so you have to, like, write it down for me. And I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> it's fine. Wow. Sounds like you set yourself quite the challenge. <laughs> uh, it doesn't feel like it at the time. Like, it was a really, you know, um, I mean, it was stressful to put together, you know. And again, every day is unpredictable with a five-year-old. You go, at the end of each day, you go, okay, that went well. What the hell do we do tomorrow? Mm. Um, but no, while it was happening, it was kind of fun. We, we actually finished filming early, so we could do the rap party across two days instead of just the <laughs> one. Um, and there was a sense of real, like, family off-screen as well as on-screen. And, and even when we were all in Venice, like, it was such a sweet moment to just reunite with everyone. Um, and, you know, this film was shot in various places, inclu like, including some very rough places. Uh, they were kind of full of joy and life anyway. Um, but it was interesting to get then go with like you know half the cast into Venice and suddenly we're dining in a palazzo mm -hmm. because the Universal Pictures who are thankfully distributing the film is taking us out and it's like wow that's a contrast to what a day to day wow. life feels like. You don't yell cut, is that right? Uh, okay. Quite often, no. You kind of wait for the scene to wind down naturally, or an actor just go, okay, I'm done. I'm like, got it. Thank you, <laughs> thank mm. you so much. But. I usually, like, let them keep going because um, I think, especially in the kind of situations we're filming, the actors are so emotionally invested and connected with each other in these scenes that if you just give them the space and they keep, uh, you know, staying character and staying in the scene, they kind of build on it. And sometimes it's improv, not necessarily verbal improv, but, you know, just an exchange of looks mm -hmm. uh, and things gives you another emotional moment or just a gesture 
that sort of has to almost come from the situation naturally. It's often not something you could have predicted uh, in advance. What do you think actors down the line or even now are going to say about what it is to appear in a Goran Stalevsky film? Oh, God. I, I mean, mean what I feel are, like they should be answering Well, they, get, they certainly get a close-up, don't they? <laughs> they do, they do. I think they definitely... Um, I also... It's, again, it's not just me as well, behind the camera. Like, in this case, I worked with uh, Naum Doksevsky, who's my Macedonian cinematographer, anytime I'm over there. And often I work with Matthew Truong and Bethany Ryan from Melbourne on my other films. And what happens is... Uh, between them, they sort of organize like a 360-degree space, which gives the actors all this freedom to go around. Um, we don't have to worry about lighting or the camera catching them because the way Naum did in Macedonia on this film, usually Maddie C does it on my other films. They follow them around. The actors just feel free, like they could do anything at any point. And they don't have to worry about making sure the camera catches them or getting in the way because... They, I think they feel prioritized, um, not just by me, but by the whole team. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's why you still get along <laughs> you know, after the film shoots. So, do, um. do you finish a film like this and it could go for five hours? Like, is it, is it a monster to edit with all this improvisation and sort of free-flowing? Oh, God. I mean, it couldn't go for five hours because you feel like <laughs> the limit of, you know, yeah. how much it should go. Um, it is a monster to edit. I mean, a lot of the time, um, there's a simpler version, you know, I, uh, there's a straightforward edit. Like, I, I'm kind of editing in my head as I'm shooting, so I know that there's a version of it, at, at the very least, I could do. But, like, there's little moments of improv that I try to, you know, embroider in the film because I think they're they're fun for a viewer to watch. And then it's just like, how do I put this in but don't interrupt the flow and don't make the film longer or make it bloat? Um and, and I often end up, like, even, you know, deleting, like, my favorite scene. Initially, the three mm. features I've done. Um, not because, you know, anything went wrong or whatever, but often that, that scene is there for a particular emotional reason. And then throughout the filmmaking, you know, process, there's been all these moments that have been collected from what the actors just bring mm. you in the day that it makes the scene quite unnecessary. Um, mm. So I try to prioritize what I think would be fun f- for someone to watch and f- to, to, for them to stay connected to the film rather than what, you what shows me of. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like the, the creative process and the, the process for the actors is incredibly like realised and considered. What is it like on the other side of like the coin? Does that present any challenges for you like when trying to pitch your films and get them made? People are like, you're going to do what? 360 <laughs> degrees? <laughs> oh, we don't tell them that. Yeah, that's. okay, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a secret. I often also, like again, I've been in a lucky position so far that it's been my producers that are doing the pitching. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, for the financing i'm sort of just like kept in a corner with my toy box and this girl <laughs> like uh girl, okay christina or in this case maria like uh here's here's a movie um what do we do and then they kind of take the package um and yeah housekeeping for beginners is screening as part of melbourne queer film festival what does uh, macedonia culturally make of this film uh, how's it being received and what were you expecting how does it fit, basically, with cinema in Macedonia? I, I wasn't, you know, it, uh, I never really think in advance of how something will be received in a wider cultural way. Like, when I'm making it, I just think of, like, the one ideal viewer and how do you stay connected to them, you know. And then the film is finished and suddenly it's playing and I have the shock to the system of, like, oh, my God, right, there's, there's a thousand people watching this now and... It premiered in actually as the opening night film at the main festival in Macedonia a few weeks ago. 
Um, and what I wasn't told is that like the nation's kind of archbishop who organizes anti-pride parades was going to be in attendance. Mm. Uh, and I only realized that as I walked in, I'm like, oh, okay, well, this will be interesting. A shock to his system as well, I imagine. Um, and look, it was kind of, I mean, he walked out uh, during the opening minutes, yeah. uh, which was, I think, the solution to the problem. Um, and yeah, it was interesting to see how it played because that festival specifically ha happens in a small conservative town um, in a place, in a region that's already quite conservative. And a lot of people go because there's a red carpet ceremony and we can, you know, take pictures in our dresses in advance and don't really know what happens in the films. So, mm. you know, as soon as the first gay scene, let's call it, comes on, there was a little bit of a walkout. Uh, but then by the end of the film, like, a lot of people were laughing and, you know, there's some racy jokes, uh, very queer in nature uh, in the film. But it was amazing to see, like, people just laughing and going ahead along with it. Because the other thing is, like, no one in this film is very idealized. You know, um, there's people who are kind of being gay parents, but that doesn't mean they're very noble. They're very messy. <laughs> yeah. You kind of, you, you're not always sure there should be parents, gay or straight, <laughs> yeah. you know? And I think because it's kind of relatable and people are watching it, you know, and enjoying the comedy and the recognizable kind of family dynamics, it was kind of pretty well received. And in terms of the media, the reviews, like, they were spectacular. Um, I've only seen, you know, I think one or two tweets so far telling me I'm attacking the family. And even that's exciting. I'm just like, wow, these people have heard of me. How exciting. <laughs> um, so, no, it actually has gone relatively well, um, especially, again, in this kind of place, because it's processed mainly as a story with fun characters. And there's no political issues that are, you know, overtly pushed, I would say, um, in the film. Because uh, that's boring as an artist. Well, I mean, God. Like, and also, I mean, as if you're going to change anyone's mind by telling them, you know, gay people are good. So if you didn't know that in advance, I don't think you're going to change your mind in two hours. But in the meantime, I can say, look, these people are fun. Just watch it. Yeah. You'll have a good time. I don't care what you think about me at the end. <laughs> Beautiful. Know. Well, to watch it and enjoy it, we've been speaking about housekeeping for beginners. It's screening as part of Melbourne Queer Film Festival this Saturday. Yeah, Saturday at the Capitol. Beautiful. Head to mqff.com.au for more information. There's also going to be a screening at Cinema Nova on the 18th. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so head to Cinema Nova for details there. i tell you what, what a great pleasure it's been to chat with writer, director of Housekeeping for Beginners, Goran Stalewski. Thanks, Goran. Thank you guys for having me. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Edgar's mission is a not-for-profit sanctuary for rescued farm animals, which this year celebrates 20 years of education, outreach and advocacy and for feature creatures. This week we're joined by the founder and director of Edgar's mission, Pam Ahern. Pam, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be in Melbourne. Oh, good. Yeah, now you're ordinarily what, in Lansfield? In Lansfield, yeah, so I've come down to the big smoke. <laughs> uh, and now what are you doing in Lansfield? What, is, what does it look like if we were to visit Edgar's mission? There is no two days that are ever the same at Hedgers Mission. Sometimes the day even starts from the night before. It may be caring for a rescued animal who came in. We generally, the staff come on site now at six o'clock in the morning starting with the animal care where the animals are all checked. Anyone who needs feeding or put out, some of our animals have prosthetics, which is really interesting. And then they'll go out and do their day things. We check them throughout the day. On these hot days, we'll have hot weather checks of the animals to make sure everyone's safe and healthy. Then we go over an evening, the animals go to bed. Our 
our days are pretty much ruled by our chickens, the smallest animals on the sanctuary. Um, the biggest uh, up, uptake with they have to be locked away over an evening because we do have predators in the area just to keep them safe. And then maybe some lambs that need to be fed throughout the night. We have dear Bella, who is a non-ambulatory sheep who has to have her therapeutic exercises done. So then we'll sort of wind down and we'll start it all again the next day. Mm. Can I ask, how did these animals come to be at Edgar's Mission? That's a really good question. When I started the sanctuary many, many moons ago, I said to one of my friends, gosh, you know, how am I going to fill this sanctuary? And they said, don't worry, once you put the shingle out, you've got a not-for-profit sanctuary for rescued animals. They will come and they will come. And just for an example, on Saturday evening, I <clears throat> had planned to have a, a night off going to a market up there in Bendigo. And then a call came in, someone had found a quail um, who had been attacked by a bird. So they came in and people might realise that quail are actually farm for meat in Australia. So that was the first call. Saturday evening, a lamb came in with a broken leg. And then the next one was a sheep had come off a truck and she was non-ambulatory on the side of the road. So that was just my Saturday. That's wow. in one night. Wow. <laughs> and so all those animals too, they were fairly high needs care as well. So they've taken quite a bit of work. The little lamb needed their leg to be splintered. So a huge shout out to everyone who's looking at Venezuela at the sanctuary this morning. I'll be back soon. <laughs> and uh, our other sheep there that, that came in, uh, Valerie, who's had to have her leg in a car. She has a um, Achilles teal, Achilles tear in her Achilles tendon. And the the story starts with pigs, though. It does. It started with a pig who um, took my heart away back in 2003. <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't have the plan to actually start the sanctuary. It was really a quirky idea for a photo shoot. In 2003, the code of practice for pig farming was being reviewed. Now, most people like me grew up thinking you know, that farm animals, like all animals, have protection under our Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. We've enshrined it in legislation. Like we've said, animals matter, uh, regardless of... Of, you know who, who they are but actually when we've come to our care of animals we really have been guilty of playing favorites we treat animals not on their ability to suffer or their desire to experience the world and all of its magic we treat animals on the shape they've come in the familiarity we have with them and the use we have of them nothing to do with the animals themselves and this has happened by things called codes of practice now most people don't realize these codes of practice they're basically a get out of jail card for what we do to farm animals this code of practice was being reviewed in 2003 and one of the things that i think makes australia such a great country is that our laws reflect public thought they don't drive them so we can change our laws so this is an awesome chance to tell people about what's happening but it was a really difficult thing as a, uh, at the time i was working with animals australia who were nowhere near the influential organisation they are today and just trying to get media coverage about what was happening was really really hard it was so lucky that James Cromwell who many recognises Farmer Hoggett from the hit movie <laughs> Babe was in Australia at the time and wow wouldn't it be great if we get James on board to raise awareness about pigs you know, could we even get in touch with this Hollywood megastar James Cromwell is one of the finest human beings you will ever meet. Couldn't do enough to help us. Got in touch with the Age newspaper. They wanted a pig for a photo shoot. No worries, I'll get a pig, I said. And I approached one of the children's farms and they said, look, that's fine, but it'll cost you $150. And I said, well, pigs, I didn't have $150. And I do have a little bit of a problem with children's farms. So I said, I'll get a pig. I lived in the country at the time and that's when Edgar Allan Pig came into my <laughs> life and really changed it forever just from that photo shoot that went so amazingly well James had this idea that he would walk up the steps of Parliament House with Edgar by his side and demand a better deal for pigs and thought, well actually now I've actually really do have to get Edgar to walking on a lead so I took him down to the park with my little dog E.T. I had Edgar one side E.T. the other people came from 
everywhere to marvel at Edgar and his unique brand of pickiness. They'd rub his dummy and they'd say, he's gorgeous, he's amazing, he's clean, he's better than my boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) And it got me thinking that people never really get a chance to know animals like Edgar. Yet every day of the week they determine how those animals live and die. Mm. But what if people did get a chance to meet animals like Edgar and find out the unique individuals they are? So that's how the idea of the sanctuary began. And then the animals just started coming and coming and it literally got bigger like Edgar Allan Pig himself. <laughs> Where, what would you have been doing just if, were it not for this light bulb moment? It seems like an alternative life that you got led down. Absolutely. Probably having a normal life. I, <laughs> I had, a, had a full-time paying job. I actually had a boyfriend and I had a successful equestrian career. I hung up the boots of the a successful equestrian career. I said goodbye to my full-time paying job. And, and my boyfriend, when he posed the question, it's me or the pig, that was probably the easiest one I had to answer. And uh, just went down this path that really has just opened up. Sounds um, like you've got your own movie there. Yeah, I know. You feel like when you ask that question, it's a lay-down Maserati ultimatum. But uh, it turns out it was actually more of a line ball one than we yeah. could ever have hoped. Kindness features pretty prominently in your mission. Absolutely. Our, our mission is simple. Our mission is kindness. You know, when I was looking at how do we get people to start to thinking about our relationship with the other animals we share the planet with. And it's a bit of a, uh, a quantum leap for a lot of people because we, we tend to think of ourselves so different from these animals, yet at the heart of it we are all animals too. And what links us and them is kindness, mm. you know, is actually being kind. And I think it speaks to the best of humanity. You know, we do want to be kind, but we don't realise a lot of the choices that we make in our life aren't very kind, whether it's to um, others, be they others, animals, people or the planet. But when we can actually start to align ourselves with our true selves of, of being kind, I think everyone benefits and that's got to be a good thing. Mm. Is there anything that we do in the name of kindness but actually is not actually beneficial? I'm thinking, for instance, you know, feeding ducks and bread and there are signs saying don't feed bread. But is there anything that you pick up that uh, behaviour that you would like to see less of? I would really like people to actually think about the actions that we do and, and do they make sense? And you raised a great example about, you know, feeding ducks bread. It actually does speak to who we are as a human being. We want to do something good for another. It feels good when we feed the ducks bread. But actually when we think about it from the ducks' point of view, it's actually really very bad for them. Um, A lot of those ducks actually on those places that people are feeding are actually dumped domestic ducks that people have outlived their usefulness. A lot of them are generally males. So it's actually when we think beyond the initial gratification that we get for doing something there's actually a downside to it I think my greatest challenge is really to get people to think one of the things I always say at Edgar's mission I never want to tell people what to do or what not to do one I've got no authority to do that and I've got no guarantee that if I tell people to do that they'll do it but if somehow I can actually get people to connect with their heart and thinking about what they're doing that is just going to be such a ripple effect. You know, I can tell you something and talk to Blue and Face and you go outside. And I really don't want the people to live the world according to Pam because then you're going to end up eating way too much chocolate, terrible for a sense and not getting enough sleep. We don't want to do that. But the good things, that mission of kindness really does speak to, to who we are as human beings. And I know you can't play favourites, but is there a particular, like, farm animal that you feel like... Uh, you'd like to see um, a shift in how they're perceived or you feel like that animal's misunderstood from the broader People often ask me, you know, who is my favourite and I always say whoever I'm standing next to. (laughs) I think it's 
It's actually seeing animals not in classifications. I mm. think that's the thing. Like we, we classify um, these animals as farmed animals and we classify these animals domestic pets. Uh, we classify these animals pests and we classify these animals as maybe our, our native animals. And when we put labels on things, it compartmentizes in our heads and it also desensitizes us to the suffering of others. And we look at that, you know, with, with, with people, you know, one of the great determinants of a society's ethical progress has been our ability to embrace those we once considered different from the colour of one's skin to the religion one followed to gender. We now know they are no justification for treating others differently. It was Chief Justice Michael Kirby of the High Court of Australia said that the way that we treat animals is our next great social justice movement and I really think he's on the money because at the heart of it, these are animals. We are animals. They have a heart that beats just like ours. They have blood that flows through their veins just like ours and they have rich emotional worlds just like ours. They look a little bit different and when we actually start to recognise that these beings just want to experience the world and all of its magic like we do, you know, we don't have to bring these animals into our homes but I think we need to bring them into our hearts. Uh, you're wearing a hoodie and like a 15 year anniversary Edgar's Mission hoodie and you said underneath is 20 year t-shirt like a you know milestone babushka uh, I'm wondering what about the future what where what have you seen and where do you think we're going I think we are ticking slowly in the right direction. We, we certainly are. Um, one of the, the milestones for me is actually the world can pronounce the word vegan. Um, many years ago when I embarked on my journey, I was a vegan for many years uh, because there was no one else around me to tell me I was actually pronouncing it incorrectly. Um, <laughs> the only non-dairy milk I could get was this powdered stuff you mixed up with water. It tasted absolutely disgusting. I can now go to my supermarket in Lansfield, population 2,500 and, well, there's one less because I'm here today there's a very small population i can get soy milk rice milk oat milk macadamia milk i can get vegetarian burgers that are actually vegan i can get vegan ice cream in Lanceville, mm-hmm. this is the times are changing. And these are all driven by people's choices. You know, we think we don't have so much power, but we do. There's a wonderful quote that says, anyone who thinks that they don't, uh, they're too small to make a difference has never been in bed with a mosquito. <laughs> and I think that's a really, really powerful statement because we all have so much power. You know, we're voting every day of the week for the world that we want to live in. You know, the foods that we eat, the clothes that we wear, even our language, it's shaping the world. We have so much power. Mm. Can people come and visit you at Edgar's Mission? Well, they might want to visit the animals more than visit me, but they certainly can. We have have tours um, Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays. We do ask people to book online. The tours are free, but just for biosecurity and just for the animals' experience, we have people go around in groups, not just wandering around doing their own thing. Mm. And what about prosthetics? There can't be much money in making prosthetics for lambs or something like that. How does – what's that industry like? That is just so amazing. So the first little lamb that came to us is Charity – and she came down from New South Wales and it was like a, um, a hopscotch way that she got down from different people ferrying her from town to town to get her down here. She was born on a sheep farm in New South Wales without feet on two of her legs and one of her foot, she only had one digit. They um, even toed ungulates, their toes are split in two. She only had one toe on one foot. Our mission is to give these animals a life truly worth living. And so we actually had to send off to America to get these special prosthetics made for charity. They go on with special socks, just like humans. They're the same uh, prosthetics that humans wear, the socks. And now prosthetics are being made in Australia for animals and farm animals as well. So if you ask me, like, how many of our animals wear prosthetics, I have to think, gosh, they're probably like half a dozen. We have probably another dozen sheep that are tripods that have lost their legs through accident or misadventure. Now, generally those animals would have been euthanized, but they can certainly have a life worth 
living. We have animals that have been born without eyes or one eye, still having wonderful lives in navigating their world feelingly. And it's just so inspirational seeing these animals just get on with the business of living, reminding us that's what we should as well, yeah. not, not complain and you know grumble about things. I just love the way these animals do that. Well, congratulations on 20 years of Edgar's Mission. Head to edgarsmission.org.au for more information. We've been speaking with Pam Ahern, Director of Edgar's Mission. Thanks very much, Pam, for making the track down. Wonderful. Thank you, everyone. Triple R. It's an exciting day. Is it? Get ready. Yes, it is. You Very said before exciting. it was the 10th and the 11th. I mean, <laughs> doesn't get much more exciting Which than one that. Do you, you say it. Well, man. strap in, listeners, because today is the day, 120 years ago, a little lady named Mary Anderson got the patent approved for her invention, what she called a window cleaning device, Mm. which is now widely known as the windscreen wiper. Congrats. Thank you, which I think is pretty exciting. I hope Mary's descendants are getting some... Yeah, I wonder. She's not not getting any cash. Lots of people... most likely not. No, true, or her descendants. She never did, though. <gasps> anyway, I need to dive more into that. I'm not going to focus on the negative. We're focusing <laughs> on, the, on the wonder that is the invention of the windscreen wiper. But quick question before I dive into that. I always kind of, if I'm kind of scrolling, like, different things that happened on this day, which is where I came across this, I'm always, patent is so deflating. Do you reckon I could just go out and go, it was invented today? Yeah. Like, because it's a technicality. Like, I wasn't invented today. It wasn't invented today. She might have been working on it. But she got it approved today. So, I don't know. How do you feel about that? It's not something I've ever turned my mind to. Well, an epiphany, it's hard to date stamp, time exactly. stamp an epiphany. Mm. Uh, then if it's on the production line, that could be years later. So mm. the earliest verifiable moment is the patent. So well, the way Daniel yeah, says it does fantastic. fill me with excitement. I love it. That, <laughs> that was beautiful to watch him work through, you know. I hope the listeners enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Apparently they're not interchangeable, but I'm like, I, I just didn't want to be, you know, creating false news, yeah. you know, oh, circulating, you. Mm. creating fake headlines. But, yeah, so it was invented today or, yeah, let's go with that, invented today. She didn't drive. Imagine that. She was on um, like riding a streetcar in New York and she thought it, it was snowing and thought it was wild that like the conductors, the drivers had to keep getting out and wiping the windscreen. And then so she went off and did a sketch. Lots of people submitted patents for the windscreen wiper, but hers is the closest to what we have today. Mm. So she is widely credited for inventing the windscreen wiper, but I should say there are a lot of other names. In the mix. I I knew it was a woman, but I'd also always told myself it was an Australian. Okay. So I'm going to go with that. No, she was an American from Alabama. Oh, okay. Yeah, Mary Mary Anderson. Gee, what an unusual thing to get patriotic about. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And I think we're great inventors, such as I think I probably even used it in that. Did you know we invented the windscreen? You've dragged it out at the dinner party. (laughs) And they go and tell their friends. (laughs) Pay it forward of Miss Truths. Well, go home and write this down, Mon. I'm sorry to everyone. Before any social engagements, before your next coffee date, spreading misinformation about the windscreen wiper. But I'm a big fan of the windscreen wiper. Like I think it's really I mean, there's nothing like that first kind of wipe across taking the first do you know sometimes i delay it sometimes i delay it to let the rain build up 
do, yes. And re- to really get that that feeling. <laughs> it's what a loser, but I do. It's good. Yeah, it's yeah. very satisfying. Or uh, when you go under like a bridge, so there's a little delay when there's when the when there's no rain. Uh huh. And then you come out again, and there's rain. It cleans. It's anyway. How do you feel? It gives you a thrill. Oh yeah. Gives you gives you a real thrill. <laughs> Rush. I want to ask how you feel. How you both feel about the speeds on offer for the windscreen wiper because I often find myself feeling a bit embarrassed sometimes because I feel like there is like a speed missing. I feel like there's about three or four on most cars. It's like slow, medium and and really fast. Mm -hmm. But the jump between the medium to really fast is too big. It's too it's too frantic. It's like going from sixty to a hundred. And it's like we need an eighty zone in the windscreen wiper Speed. I reckon some cars, some new cars would have four kinds. I looked into it because I was like, if anyone's got like all the speeds and the technology, it would be a Tesla. But they have like three. But they have an auto function. My my car has an auto function where it like just they go automatically when it starts raining. Okay. Your car. I know. (laughs) Your car. Your hunk of junk. I know when I when we first got it, I was like, "That is so cool." Yeah. Um. So you just always have the little the little switch switch on auto. Mm-hmm. So whenever it starts raining, they'll just go on. I feel like old cars. There's always something that's like weirdly impressive and futuristic about it. <laughs> my old absolute my car that caught fire. <laughs> 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 like cruise control or whatever. Like, this is just a step above a horse. <laughs> uh, so um, how many speeds do you have on the horse? <laughs> well, it's three. I mean, I don't want four options. I, I, too many. It's, too, it's choice paralysis. I don't need it. But the, I do find that some uh, people are a little bit – they're not liberal enough or they mm. – maybe they're – if you're a passenger and it's – Bucketing down, and it's 31 degrees today, so it's not going to happen today. But it, then sometimes, like, can you turn it on? It feels dangerous. Yeah, okay. Mm. Someone like Mon who's saving up the raindrops to yeah, get Yeah, or the if it's really bucketing down, it's like, yeah, up it. And yeah, and there is, I get the satisfaction, but sometimes the satisfaction can tip into arrogance. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's like we're driving. Let's consider the safety and let's stay mm. focused on the road. Yeah, don't yeah. don't I had dance to with the devil. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm all. <laughs> I'll always go faster. Like I'll always kind of keep things safe on the road. But I will. I just feel embarrassed sometimes. I go. I hope like you're overreacting. Exactly. Like screen wipers. Well, see, when mine are on auto function, if it rains, like they increase the speed. If it's raining a lot, blah blah blah. blah. Yeah. So it's not me. It's the car. Okay. I'm not choosing to put it on. Crazy but the mode. person next to you doesn't. Know that. No, they don't look at the makeup and they model. Like look that. over and go, wow, she's overreacting. <laughs> well, she's panicking. It's only a couple of <laughs> centimetres, love. Chill out. But the noise of the high speed is oh. a disincentive to crank it up to the max. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like It's, it's and panic the, inducing. And the noise of the rain, and then you try and talk over it, and yeah. it's yeah, it's very loud. It's in there. hard. It's really loud. Yeah, I don't mind like the first squeak because you go, it's doing its job. It's really lifted some water off the screen, off the windscreen, yeah. off the shield. Yeah, it reminds you sometimes, I suppose, if you don't have enough soap in the whatever you'd call it, the canister. Yeah. And then, of course, if there's if there happens to be a, a, a bird that's, you know, there's remnants of a mm. bird's evacuation, then 
that's it's like, well, do you put it dry? Like you want the rain to build up because you don't want to dry a windscreen wiper trying to push through that coarse no. excrement. No, no, no. When you when you get a top up when you top up the the soap the cleaner in the jeez, it's it's. A, I can't wait to go home. Yeah, and do this. go <laughs> all the trimmings. Make sure you check the oil, check the the water. And oh the, yeah, oil doesn't forget that. Yeah. No, nah, I just want clean. I just want clean glass. Someone said uh, John on the text line hired a Tesla. And said, whenever I put my foot on the brake, the wipers came on. So that sounds maybe like <laughs> well, that an sounds error. like a glitch, yeah, for sure. I don't think that's God, so what cute. The Teslas have like cute little character quirks, it sounds like. <laughs> Almost like scratching a dog under its stomach and it kicks. <laughs> oh, it's not a design flaw, it's a character quirk. <laughs> I got an Uber the other night and it was or a while back actually and it it was incredible. Like it was a Tesla. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I key missed that detail. part. No, no, key detail. All the roof was glass and it was raining actually. Oh, oh. Yeah. And so it was beautiful. It was like a ride. Mm. <laughs> I know. I couldn't believe it. Mm. And I wish I had paid closer attention to the windscreen wiper situation. But I feel like because a lot of the more, um, yeah, more modern cars uh, just got the one singular the big one wiper mm. which i think would be kind of satisfying to watch i feel like it gives a, the car a bit of personality as well i paid a window washer mm. the other day and he it's the first time a window washer has just done an atrocious job oh. i was so really? upset yeah because i wanted it should be better than the windscreen wiper because the whole point of it is that delicious corners and crannies that the wiper itself can't get to. A clean window, like you you really want it to pop, it should be glistening, you should notice it. Mm. Mm. Uh, But I did notice that they they were storing their – cleaning equipment in a shrub somewhere and I've, I felt like they were maybe going back every day and not uh, re-upping. Oh, so you got the dregs. I got the dregs. You got did the you ask, Yeah, you I ask? gave them the worst trip advisor review. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely scathing. <laughs> Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. Richard Flanagan is a Booker Prize-winning author published in 42 countries and whose books include Death of a River Guy, The Sound of One Hand Clapping, Gould's Book of Fish, The Unknown Terrorist and The Narrow Road to the Deep North. His latest is called Question 7, described as a love note to his island home and his parents. And to tell us about it, the Commonwealth Prize-winning writer joins us now. Richard, welcome to Breakfasters. It's great to be here. Well, it's, it's terrific to have you and it's quite an extraordinary discursive book uh, here it's it circles around maybe chain reactions and I was thinking of one chain reaction in the book that maybe your life as an observer and writer there's an alcoholic doctor who can take some credit oh yeah well I, I um I spent my childhood in a little mining town on the remote west coast of Tasmania a little scab in that great sort of rainforested wilderness we know as the Tarkon today and um he failed to diagnose a simple ear condition I had and in consequence gave me a few amphetamines and that was it. And um, I, I grew deaf uh, in consequence. So um, for a, quite a few years it was thought I was simple and um, really I, I couldn't really hear much and couldn't talk much and um, I, I guess I found a way of uh, comprehending the world and being comprehended through the written word and that's... Uh, one of the origins of how I became a writer. Mm. What was it like growing up with 
in in a your big family in a literate family you i mean you've come you mentioned your grandfather was illiterate uh it seems quite a a, a huge jump uh from f- f- the, the whole stock to and by virtue of your parents i suppose uh, i think um you know maybe it makes you more conscious of the power of written words because my my father I think he had a real sense of the magic of those 26 abstract symbols and how they can summon up a, a universe if, you, if you've if you got the skill to use them. He once said to me, the written word, because he came from a very poor background, the written word was the first beautiful thing he ever knew. And um, I think maybe when people are literate through generations, they lose that sense that the written word is actually magical and it's also liberating if you have it it's an incredibly, it's a source of freedom because it takes you into other worlds and other possibilities. And if you don't have it, um, it it's oppressive and you, 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 you're robbed of possibilities and of hope. Mm. So um, I, I think too often people who have it don't understand what it is not to have it. And, and it is amazing, just those 26 symbols. And we can conjure up, um, we can fly to the moon, we can do anything. That if you if you just stop still and use them, mm-hmm. you touch on naivety in the book, and maybe did you shed some naivety in the writing and the thinking of your life? Now, look, my parents were you know they, they were very ordinary people in one sense, but like all ordinary people, really they were extraordinary when you think about their lives. And my father had experienced the horror of the prisoner of war camps in the Second World War. He was on the the death railway. And I think he sort of knew that, that he'd seen a meaningless universe and he found meaning through a very simple assertion of the idea of love, you know. Like, all that mattered to him was being kind and good to other people. He didn't care at all about material achievements, success, money. None of that meant anything to him. And um, that idea of love, to me, when I was younger, it seemed a bit naive because the world's such a cold, brutal place... But they just asserted that idea, practised it, fought for that love, till in the end it became their own truth, their own reality. And that too, I guess, is a form of magic. And they were the magicians. <laughs> What's the relationship between courage and kindness? I mean, that's, a, that's a great question. But I, I think uh, perhaps cynicism is the new naivety and that's a form of cowardice. It's always easy to find a reason, as we've seen lately, to say no. And it takes courage to say yes. But the world's a wonderful invitation. And I always think uh, when you get an invitation, it's far better to accept it than to turn it down because it always leads to new wonders. I want to know about the the interview in this book. It's part memoir, but then you've interspersed history and there's a sort of mystical element in it as well when you look back on your life is that are we getting an insight into your brain and how your mind works are there always bits and pieces thrown together in a sort of non-linear way (laughs) well I I I think we um I don't think we live in the world we're told you know we live in a world um where really what matters to us uh, uh, you know who we love, uh, how to live, we, we, we actually, these are the things, we're not so, although we think we live in a world where we're worried about 
the small things of life. It's actually the large things that really matter to us, but we don't talk about them. And so um, in this book, I'm trying to ask the question of what it means to live. What, what, what is it that really matters to us? And I think it's the small things, the little things, the, the love we have for each other and others have for us, the other things that really matter to us. Did you used to think differently? Probably not. Uh, well, I, yeah, look, I did. I, I detail in this book an incident where, um, at the book's end, where I, I nearly died, uh, drowned on the, nearly drowned on the Franklin River when I was a young man. And um, after that, everything felt a dream to me. And all the things that people hold up as being important, careers, success, all those sorts of things, I suddenly realised they didn't mean much. What, what mattered was just the people around you and um, and the, the, the wonder of everyday life, you know, the, the small, beautiful things. I think in this world today, we, we, we get so much information about what power does. We're seeing it, you know, with what's going on in the Middle East at the moment. And it's overwhelming. But if you look to power, it's only a source of despair. But you look at the people around you and the small things, good things they do, and that's always a source of hope. And that's real. That's what we actually know. And I think, you know, looking towards that, it, you, you find a way to keep on living and knowing there, there, there is genuine good in the world. You went to the top of power at Oxford. It did seem particularly pleasant in your description. It... Ugly, in fact. Yeah, look, it, it was a it was a dreadful place. Racist, misogynist, anti-Semitic. You know, um, it was a it was a place it was a place of hate, and um, there's a great mythology around it. But that was my experience of it, and I, I talk about it at some length in the book. the re- The reality is, for an Australian to go there and to be told our civilization but when you look at the record of that civilization in Australia it was no more than organized barbarism and um, so I, I found the attitudes that prevailed there quite shocking you know there was like everywhere there was some lovely people but the culture of it was uh, you know not it was really something that was awful mm. As it strikes me as kind of ironic, Boris Johnson, I think, is in the Middle East with Scott Morrison. Uh, yeah, well, send in the clowns. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you also write that you were born into the autumn of things, and I wonder if when that realisation hit. I think during that, you know, that that, that long, dark time that was, was the COVID years, I realised that the, there was a certain world I grew up in that I took for granted that had all these plants and animals and birds and fishes and certainly in my home of Tasmania those things I thought were there forever they're vanishing Um, and they won't be here in another 10 years and um, there's an enormous sadness to that but I think um, the, the one thing that's clear is that if we do nothing so much more will vanish and so we must do something. How do you how does that knowledge how do you grapple with that as well as your philosophy of focusing on the positive things around you and the the love in your life I feel like there's a tension there with that extreme anxiety about the way the world is going and then trying to focus on something positive well it's it's not an anxiety it's just a recognition of what is um 
But the world remains, you know, if you stop and stand still in that, it still remains beautiful and there's still so much beauty in it. Um, but if you see that beauty, um, you sort of have a response. It is a form of truth and you have a responsibility to speak to that truth and to fight for it, you know, and uh, because that's what matters. Mm. Do you have hope? Yeah, I have enormous hope. Yeah, I do. And it, it's not... It, it's not a philosophy, it's my experience, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, because, as I say, if you see that these good things are everywhere, you know, um, and um, they're, they're, they, they feed me, you know. That, and I see a lot of people who feel similarly about them. And uh, I think... Um, uh, I, I don't think that river of hope and goodness is so simply stopped, you know. And I I think it suits, um, you know, certain interests to to, to create a culture of despair, to make people feel that they have no power. But it's we who disempower ourselves equally, we can empower ourselves, you know. It's, It's, we just shouldn't believe the lie that we can't change anything, you know, that... That's why the truth's always suppressed, you know, because um, once people know the truth, they will act on it. I mean, history shows that again and again. You've written about the, uh, the, the argument against war can never be won but must never stop being made. And I wonder, even more broadly, just the idea of getting back on the horse and just keep going at it, keep writing books, keep connecting, just keep going. And if that plays any role in your life, even though there are so many characters in the book that it threw out all the face of horror and adversity and dispiriting evidence to give up, they nonetheless soldier on, optimistically almost. Uh, Vaclav Havel, the, the, great, um, the great writer who led the Velvet Revolution in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia, said... Um, you win a battle in order to learn that the war goes on forever. But when you realise that, you, you, you don't worry so much. You, it's part of our condition. But um, I think uh, you should take pleasure from your friends, from the good times you have, from the joy that's in the world. Um, do what you can along the way and um, and the world goes to a better place, you know, Um don't uh, you know? It, as as they say, in the long run, we're all dead. You know, but in the short term, you can do some things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is this book drawing a line under anything for you? Do you think you'll be a different writer, or in what way do you think you might be a different writer moving forward? I look, the book was really influenced a lot by indigenous ideas of time, which felt at once. Um, a, 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 a Yongnyu woman, Sienna Stubbs, sent me this marvellous essay about how in Yongnyu there's a, an, a fourth tense. So we have past, present and future. They have this tense in which, um, you know, something that's happening now also happened a thousand years past and is happening a thousand years in the future. Uh, I found this such a beautiful idea, but one that's also very familiar to to everyone, I think, in Australia and... 
But it's a beautiful idea because it makes you think differently about where you stand on this earth because you you come from something in the past and are of it and you also have a responsibility to the future and you you think of the, the, the earth and people in it differently and you don't worry so much about your own individual life because you existed then and you'll exist in the future. You're not bound just by the flesh you're in. So... Um, I've completely lost the tone of my Well, it's, that, but... but it does make me think of how daunting the task is for someone who is even sceptical of memory to attempt this book and then to throw in that relationship with time. It's like, well, goodness me, where do you start? Well, um, maybe you don't, but you just keep on going. Yeah. Well, that's the lesson I think we should all take. Yeah. Uh, question seven is the name of the book and which is an allusion to a very funny kind of Chekhov anecdote. Yeah, great anecdote. So he, he wrote, when he was starting out as a student, he just used to write these little absurdist sketches. One was a series of mental arithmetic questions like you, you have to do at school. And uh, question seven was, um, you know, that a train leaves station A at 3am, it has to arrive at station B at 11pm. Just before it's about to leave, the order comes that it has to arrive at 5pm. Who loves longer, a man or a woman? <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I, I love that because, you know, all of us have a public life and a pro- private life and then we have a secret life. And what, and that's the, that's the question and the sort of question we ask ourselves. Who loves longer? That's well, maybe that'll be on the philosophy exam today for VCE students. <laughs> Uh, question seven is the name of the book. Richard Flanagan is the author, and it's been a great privilege to have him in the Triple R Studios. Thanks, Richard. Oh, thank you for having me. It was lovely. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. 